Welcome back to the Commercial Real Estate Investor Podcast. My name is Tyler Cobble, and today we've got a wonderful guest. His name is Gene Trowbridge. I actually met him through my good buddy, Bruce Peterson. When I first got started in syndication, Bruce said, Gene is the only guy you ever need to talk to when you're talking about putting together your private placement memorandums, your PPM documents and your subscription agreements, everything that you need to legally do a, a securities offering, which is what, it, what a syndication is. Gene is the guy to do that for you. He's, he's syndicated. He's an attorney now that's working in all of this. And his law firm, uh, Trowbridge Law Group, helps investors all over the country set up their syndications properly. Gene, that was a, a very brief introduction on you and everything that you bring to the table. But tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, thanks a lot, Tyler. Thanks for having me on your show. And and I guess the proof of the pudding is, is Bruce hasn't gone to jail yet, you know. So, <laughs> surprisingly, <laughs> surprisingly <laughs> enough. <laughs> so, so with all the work that we've done together, we we always try to keep our clients uh, doing things legally. That's for sure. But uh, just to, probably had three careers in my life. Coming out of college with an accounting degree, I went into selling commercial real estate and then uh, went into being a syndicator. After about seven years of being a broker, I spent about 20 years as a syndicator and most of my time was spent building self-storage facilities in the Southern California area and raising money through the broker-dealer community. And somewhere along the line, I came up with the thought that the care and maintenance of partners is just overwhelming. And you'll get there. You'll get there, Tyler. Yeah. Uh, the year, the year that I thought that was the truth was the year that I sent out uh, 1,767 K1s. Wow. 1,767 K1s representing about 850 investors. And so many investors were in more than one of my deals. And uh, in those days, there were, there were no companies that supported you, no back office companies, no platforms. So we were doing it all, you know, for three months, we licked envelopes and stamps and wrote reports and made photocopies of stuff. It was amazing. So I came home one day to, to the kitchen table where all the great decisions in life, at least my life, have been made. And I said to Kay, I said, I'm going to I'm going to quit this. I'm going to wind this down. But I've got four or five years of winding down that's going to be revenue producing. Um, I think I'll go to law school. And I had two kids in grade school. I was 45 and two kids in school. And my wife was working and I went off to uh, become a lawyer, so which was good for me. So I was going to do that for the next 15 years, Tyler. From 45 to 60, I was going to be a lawyer and then retire. Well, it's been 27 years. <laughs> and now I know I'm not the type of guy to retire, probably just like you. So That's I exactly just keep right. Uh, just keep working on this and uh, I've developed what I think is a pretty good practice with a couple different firms with my name in the title first and the current <laughs> one is Trowbridge Law Group and uh, uh, spent a lot of time in Nashville over the years. I've done some of my educational events, taught CCIM classes in Nashville. My uh, meeting planner, uh, lives in Nashville and actually her dad, you might even know uh, the name of Jimmy Dunn. Jimmy Dunn taught me 
uh, my first CCIM class way back when, and he's really? still he's still going alive. And uh, and anyhow, so I love the city. What a great city to be in. What a booming city in the last 10, 12 years. It's amazing. So enough about me. Yeah, that's absolutely. I mean, Nashville's just been wild. I grew up here. And so, you know, witnessing what has happened to the city in the last 10 years is pretty remarkable. I mean, I, I, I love it. But for a lot of natives, uh, it is a double edged sword, right? You're you're having to deal with a bunch of growing pains and, and all that kind of stuff. Traffic, um, tourism. Those are all good things, too, if you look at it from the right right perspective. It depends on what you're doing. Just as right. an aside, it has nothing to do with what we're talking about. Uh, I've seen Bob Dylan at the Ryman. Nice. When was Bob that? Dylan? Oh, oh, God, it was several years ago. Uh, Bob Dylan and Jack White came and played, and Dylan was all electric, and Jack came out, and everyone was in black, and the crowd was. I've seen a lot of great shows at either the Ryman or out at the Grand Old. Uh, the Grand Old Opera. I actually saw Loretta Lynn one night. She came on stage, and that was, uh, you know, I'm an older guy, and uh, I'm a Merle Hager and uh, George Jones type of country music fan, and so that's a great place for me to come and visit. That's right. Those are the greats. Those are the greats. Nashville is uh, is a is a wonderful city for all of that. I mean, it's it's. You know, a lot of people forget to take advantage of that, but, you know, we've got the Grand Ole Opry right down the street. The Ryman is one of the most historic music venues in the entire country, and it almost got torn down, uh, what was it, yep. 15, 20 years ago? I mean, it's just it's kind of crazy to think about um, that, you know, a lot of what makes Nashville Nashville now uh, almost went away if it wasn't for, for you know, people like Tom Morales and, and some of the other uh, guys that were working to preserve um, downtown, it could be a totally different city. No, it's really something. One last thing that's of no value to anyone is I saw <laughs> I saw Sticks perform at the Ryman, and they did. Uh, I don't even remember the name of their albums, but they did two two albums from front to back, one before the intermission and one after the intermission. And I went with a friend of mine who lives there, who's a much more of a music fanatic than I am. And it was pretty, it was pretty cool. The setting and then that music from that group, the way they looked on stage, you know, was very, uh, very That must have been a hell of a show. That'd be a lot oh, of fun right. seeing Sticks at the Ryman. <laughs> oh, that's so great. enough of that. <laughs> yeah, so, so Gene, a lot of, of my audience is either beginners into real estate or they're transitioning from residential to commercial real estate. So they may not be familiar with what a syndication is. Can you kind of explain it from a, a basic perspective, what a syndication is? Sure. This is probably the most asked question I get from people who call me and I, I call it homework calls. They call me and they say, we're, we're trying to think about this, Gene, we want to put 10, uh, 10 people together to buy a piece of property, but we don't want it to be a syndication. Bad question. Okay. <laughs> now we're going to, now we're going to put on our teacher hat and we're going to say, you know, if, if there's two of you, it's a syndication, two people combining their money and their management experience and their talents to do some business project is a syndication. I mean, you watch a, you watch it go to the movies. And there's all these logos beforehand at the movie. All the different companies have got together to put that movie together. Well, that's a syndication. A lot of things we do in life that are really syndications, not so much for a business purpose, but how about flying in an airplane? 
I don't commercially, I don't fly. I'm not a pilot. I don't own my own plane, but 140 of my closest friends and I buy a ticket and we get on a plane and we go somewhere. <laughs> Technically, that is a, a syndication. So when we're just combining money and people, it is going to be a syndication. The best question that they would ask, or at least when we're through talking, uh, we're going to take that discussion into whether it's a security. And as simply as I can state it, when we have investors investing their money into a common enterprise like an LLC, and they expect that there's going to be a profit, but someone else is going to run it, someone else is going to make it happen. We not only have a syndication, but because Tyler is going to be the managing member of this group, and he's going to make all the decisions. We have a security because it's the country uh, way back in 1933 and 34, when the securities laws were passed, Congress decided that someone needed to protect the investor from all the bad deals that were out there. We just had a market crash, right? 1929. And so they said, you know, how are we going to protect the passive investors? And the one thing they thought that needed to be done is whenever there was a manager managing their money, we need to write some rules and some laws. And those are, those are the securities laws, starting with the definition of what a security is all the way through to how you run your operation. So how are securities handled and managed differently from other types of real estate investments? Well, the biggest issue is that there's a manager <laughs> and the investors are all passive and the manager makes all the decisions. So the investors put up their money and uh, they uh, uh, give up certain rights that they would have if they bought the property themselves. They give up the rights of making their own decisions. They know what the rules are, but they give the decision to everyone else. So now from the manager's side, boy, the manager's got a lot of responsibility. Uh, the manager's got a fiduciary duty to his investors, probably to do things better than he would do for himself. In my example, living out here in Southern California is earthquake insurance. If I'm going to buy my own property in Northridge, California, I can make my own decision on whether I'm going to get earthquake insurance. But if I've got 20 investors in that property, you're damn well, I'm going to buy earthquake insurance because that's my fiduciary duty to the investors to do the, uh, to do the right, to do the right thing. So the manager manages it. All the investors are passive and uh, the manager is active and away we go. So why would somebody want to get into doing real estate syndications? Well, from, from the manager side, it's always, it's always, always that they don't have enough money themselves to buy all the real estate they'd like to buy. In fact, I talk to people all the time. And when I do my workshops, the first thing I say, if you've got all the of the money you need to buy all the real estate you need, I'll refund your money from the workshop right now. My best advice is don't do this, don't do <laughs> this, right. and just go out and buy your own real estate. Now, that kind of applies to the passive investor. 
you don't have enough money to buy your own real estate. Or even if you did, why would you buy one property when you can diversify into multiple properties? And maybe you're kind of a busy person. <laughs> maybe you've got a job. Maybe you don't have time to do all this stuff. So it's, it's a great benefit to be an investor in a syndication. There are a lot of good things you can get out of it. And of course, being the manager is a, is a business. You should run it as a profit center and uh, uh, gives you a chance to do things. One of the things I think about being a syndicator and why would you want to be a syndicator? I'm going to pick you for an example because you're a client of mine. You've identified an area in Nashville that uh, uh, you've learned all about. So if I had a chance to invest with someone like you in an area of Nashville that they know more about it than I'll ever know, why wouldn't I? Okay, just why wouldn't I? I know people that are in 20, 30, 40 passive investments as a syndicator, as, as a passive investor. Then they call me and say, Gene, I've got 40 passive investments and I want to be a syndicator. And I stop and I give it a little dead space. And then I say, why? Yeah, why? <laughs> why? Why don't you just do another 40 of these passive uh, investments and just retire? You know, why not? Why not do that? Because being a syndicator is a job, you know, 1776 K ones will tell you it's a job. I, I can't believe you had to send out that almost 1800 K ones yeah. in a single year. I mean, that's crazy. For those of you all that don't know what a K one is, that is the tax return piece of your real estate investment that you will give to your CPA uh, that every investor in a real estate project gets. And so that means that that Gene was preparing 1800 essentially tax returns not not full tax returns but pieces of them for all of his investors uh which is a lot of work a lot a lot of work so yeah it's just like getting a 1099 you know you do stuff during the year and here comes this little 1099 for the 1800 dollars you made as a side job okay that's well right. you get one of those but it's called a k1 uh, because it includes uh, taxable income and losses along with uh, reporting your cash flow. That's right. You know, it's funny, Gene, I, I tell I tell my investors and, and I, I guess I just say this all the time to everybody, but I'm like, you know, you know, you've really made it when you're just in, you're giving somebody else the money to go do the work. <laughs> you get to just sit back and collect, uh, you know, returns on your checks as long as you're investing with the right people um, and in the right deals. But you just get to sit back and let somebody else do all the work. Being a real estate investor is, you know, on your own is is a challenge depending upon what the rest of your day is like. So this is an opportunity. And, you know, just as an aside, every 12 months, the SEC publishes uh, results of surveys and the surveys are taken by looking at the form D that every syndicator uh, submits to the SEC telling them about their offerings. And in the last 12 months report, the amount of money in private placements, which is what we're talking about, not Wall Street, talking about private placements with sponsors like you, Tyler, the amount of money that was raised was $1.8 trillion. Wow. That's more money in private placements that was than was raised in IPOs 
on Wall Street during the same 12 months. And that's basically what we're doing. We're doing an IPO. Hey, we're gonna buy some dirt. We're gonna build restaurants. We're gonna build a hotel. We don't have anything yet. You wanna get in on the ground floor and invest with us. That's exactly what we're doing. And $1.8 trillion, amazing. That's I mean that's a lot of money. I, I liken it to uh, to Shark Tank, right? You're buying seventy percent of my company for you know X amount of money. So, Gene, what uh, what do you wish that that syndicators, new syndicators, knew before they really got into the business? Well, I think they knew they need to be educated on the product type. Whether uh, like you, you're you you're educated on geography, and so you know everything that's going on in an area. And then you can take that education to the different product types that are needed in that area. Or if you're going to uh, be a uh, multifamily syndicator, you better, you better hone up on what multifamily is for mobile home parks or uh, self-storage. There are all sorts of places out there in the world, uh, especially social media and uh, education-wise, that will teach you what uh, about the product that that you have so i think product uh, knowledge is is first i mean i poured a lot of concrete i built 32 self-storage facilities all at you know the 600 to a million square feet poured a lot of concrete that's uh, a lot of concrete yeah i didn't really know much about pouring concrete but i found myself a partner out of houston who had been with hunt and who knew all a lot about uh, concrete so that takes me into my second my second thing you need to have a team this is not a do-it-yourself business and it's certainly not a do-it-yourself nothing down business you got to have some money you got to have a team around you you know you can you can tell people that real estate's a great idea and you can tell people that there are opportunities in the space of real estate that you've identified and you know what those opportunities are but where the hell is your team? You've got to convince investors that you put a team together that can uh, capitalize on those opportunities that you, you've identified. And then it's easy. Then you bring them an offering. <laughs> We've already decided you're okay with real estate. We're decided that you want to invest in Nashville in some um, ground-up development. And you've already heard about my team. Now, here's what I'm doing this quarter as far as raising money. What too many syndicators do is just, Tyler, boy, I've got a really good deal on Dickerson Pike, and uh, I want you to invest in it. And you have no idea if Tyler wants to do new construction, wants to do apartment buildings, or is in cryptocurrency. You know, so you've got to, you've got to um, have a team. You've got to build a database and uh, and qualify your database for what it is you're going to do in your product type. I have I've eight different steps to take, but those are the first one. Actually, the very first one, Tyler, is something you've done successfully. And here's how I would frame it. Tyler, I love your deal. I've got the $50,000 you're looking for. I would be happy to invest with you. But Tyler, tell me, what happens if something happens to you? <laughs> yeah, I actually got asked. Uh, I got asked that question today because we're going through a capital raise. And mm -hmm. one of my potential investors asked me that he was like, what is your business succession plan? 
And I was like, that's a great question. Nobody ever asks that. And as an LP investor, it should be one of the first questions you ever ask. I think ask. it's the first question. In fact, I, my company as policy will not do an offering if Tyler is going to be the sole uh, managing member. We just won't do it. It's not fair. And I've been around. I've been the replacement managing member or GP, whatever you want to call it, uh, seven times in my career. And wow. once was because of death. But there were six other events that made it so that that individual wasn't my offerings but that individual could no longer protect the investors and their money. And it's a can of worms to step in. So we, we just don't do it unless there are at least two people. So get a continuity plan, get your uh, product knowledge beefed up and get your database uh, qualified for whatever it is you think you're gonna raise money for, that would be it. And then do a, do a specific offering to start. Uh, no blind fools without a track record. You need to do a specific offering. That's right. That's right. I, I couldn't agree more. I think team is everything. I mean, you know, Gene, you know this about me, but obviously picking the right team when I got started was paramount to my success because it allowed us to scale so quickly. You know, I bought my first building in February of 2019, and here we are, $36 million in acquisitions later. And I, I couldn't have done that in two years had I not had the right partners to one, show me the ropes, mm -hmm. but two, give me that gray hair that I can, that you have to have on, on, the, on the track record so that people just feel a little bit better that you've been there and, and, and done that. So um, Jennifer's jumping in the live chat. She's saying, I'm learning a lot tonight. Thanks, Tyler and Gene. Absolutely, Jennifer, glad you could join us. Gene, uh, speaking of education, because you mentioned how important education is. You have one of the most well-known, if not the most well-known book on syndicating real estate. Can you talk to us about that? There it is. This book. It's a whole this new business. Where it is. Yeah, it's, it's entitled A Whole New Business. It's not very thick. You can read it. Uh, it's kind of boring, but it won't take you long to, uh, long to read it. And I'm just out with my fourth edition uh, just last, uh, last month because... In the last couple of years, the SEC had made enough changes that I needed to rewrite uh, Chapter 5. So uh, it was a book, uh, when my first edition came out, it was written for real estate people. Because I, I, I have the strong background in educating real estate brokers through the CCIM program. And they all call me with the same questions. Hey, I want to put together a syndication. What do I do? And I thought, gosh, there's no there's no book out there for real estate people. There are, people, there are books out there to play the stock market and all that. But uh, So I wrote that and I'm on my fourth edition now and it's available. I'm gonna give a, a plug here. It's available on Amazon. You can just go after my name, Gene Trowbridge or the book. It's a uh, whole new business. And your partner, Bruce has a book too. He does. I mean, scandal, when I scandalous title, right? Title, right? <laughs> yeah, syndic was it syndication is a bitch, uh, <laughs> and he's being very honest with you, right? I mean, Bruce, Bruce tells it like it is, and uh, it is. I mean, like Gene was saying, like Bruce says, I mean, syndication is not easy. It's a, it's a, it's actually very tough. It can be very stressful. You're signing on a lot of debt as as the general partner. You are taking on a lot of responsibility, taking money from your part from from equity investors, 
so yeah, I mean, Bruce is right. Syndication's a bitch. <laughs> you know, I, I was in it. I was in it during. I came in in '81 where the market wasn't so hot, and then I came through the darn Tax Reform Act of '86, which caused this all before you were born. It caused all sorts of uh, trouble. Uh, and with lending institutions going out of business and oh, it was amazing. And then I, I was there during 94 uh, and uh, all sorts, all sorts of things. So it's always a, uh, it's a cyclical business actually. I think it's cyclical uh, related to um, sources of cash, sources of debt. If you can borrow 105% of everything you need, you don't need a lot of partners. Right. But if all of a sudden you can only borrow 60% of what you need and everyone has 20% down, you got to go out and find at least one more partner. And so that's, uh, that's what happens in the time where money is tight. We syndicators do quite, uh, quite, quite well. One of the things that I had thought and some of my clients had thought is when COVID came, there was going to be blood on the streets. All sorts of properties were going to go into foreclosure. And let's talk about doing a blind pool so we could raise all this money first. And then oh, left and right. You, you heard that left and right. <laughs> well, let's do that. And, you know, thank God uh, there isn't been there hasn't been an appreciable amount of blood on the streets and no one who talked to me about doing blind pools for that reason has done that. We do quite a few pools. I mean, I've got a guy who's done 140 offerings. He's probably got a track record that if you wanted to do a blind pool, he could, you know, so uh, we do that. But. Oh, that's wonderful. Caleb's jumping into the live chat saying he has the book. That's awesome. Uh, I mean, I, I, like I said, Gene's book is one of the most well-known on syndication. If you want to learn how to syndicate a deal or at least get started with, with the process and all that kind of stuff, highly recommend that you check out his book. So, Well, you know, it's, it's $24.99, okay? And I charge <laughs> worth, more worth than the price that. Of admission. I charge more than that an hour to talk to you. And I bet there's, I bet there's 20 hours worth of education in that book. So it's pretty, it's pretty cheap. And it's also on Kindle too, if you want to, uh, if you want to do that someday, I'll come out with a, with a, an audio book. I just have to find the time. Yeah, you should do that. I, uh, I actually recorded, uh, my book myself cause I wanted, you know, it's, it's so personal to me. Um, but it uh, it takes a lot of time because you you think about that. It's one I I wrote the information, so I know it back and forth. I don't want to sit down and read it again. But two, it oh, takes. it's so boring. Mm -hmm. it's, editing your own stuff is so boring. Please, that's you know? the worst. Well, quickly, did you go off script when you're reading your book? You say, you know, that just something comes up, and uh, I want to expand on this, and then I'll get back to the script. Did you say that? I didn't. I actually just stuck right to the script. I went in, you know, because I, I was very conscientious. I mean, this was, you know, I wrote the book when I was 25. So I probably recorded the audio version a couple of years ago. And I was just being very conscientious about how much money I was spending on the uh, on the studio time. So I was like, we need to get in here and, uh, you know, read it right, but read it quickly and just get it done. So okay. that was kind of my approach. Um, hey, if you are joining us live and you have any questions on real estate syndications, feel free to jump into the live chat and I will make sure to get to that uh, with Gene. 
Gene, you said that you have been a part of a number of syndications, um, and, and it sounds like several that have gone wrong. What, ti- what typically happens for a syndication to go wrong? Well, first of all, there can be trouble with the manager. Uh, secondly, there can be a, a, an outside change in the marketplace. The Tax Reform Act uh, of 86 was a wonderful example of that. One day, you could take all the losses that were generated, and we were, we were putting together deals where uh, for every $100,000 you invested, you got $400,000 in tax write-off. Oh, my gosh. And, and in one day, that went away. And a lot of those deals were staged payments. And so this outside event came and all the people said, well, I'm not going to make those staged payments. Now we're in foreclosure land. And, you know, we talk about the market. Everyone follows the stock market. Oh, my God, it goes down 600 points in one day, which is like, what, 1%. On the day after the Tax Reform Act, the stock market went down 33 Wow. Because it wasn't very much, but it went from whatever it was, like 800, it went down 33%. And uh, that's an outside influence. And then I guess some um, some uh, underwriting issues, you know, this is a risky business, you don't know. Uh, my mistake that I made in one uh, particular offering, just happy to get everyone their money back on this one, was that I was, uh, I felt I needed to have a product on the street. Because I was raising all my money, Tyler, through the broker dealers, through stockbrokers, which you're not going to do today. That's not going to happen today. But I, I, my business really was to market myself to uh, registered representatives, and then they would take my product to their people. So I really didn't know many investors, but I had this market of registered reps who sold my product. And uh, I thought, you know, I, I haven't had a product out there. I wonder whose product they're selling today. And I better get another product on the street so that I don't lose all of their investors. I'm, I need to be fresh with clients. And I jumped on a deal uh, that had a tenant who was going to be a credit union. And they never got their approval. So I have a half-empty building on a construction loan with no permanent behind because I knew that wow. if they got their permit, they would, uh, we, we wouldn't have any problem getting a uh, permanent financing. So we scrambled and we got a couple extensions and we finally got someone in there, but the rents weren't quite the same. And we were able to pull, pull a permanent that just basically paid off the construction loan. And then we, we just sold the property because it wasn't going to wasn't going to be a long-term investment that was going to do to our investors what they wanted. So you might as well get the money out of it. That's that's a best case scenario in terms of, of <laughs> worst case scenarios, right? Like at least you're able to get your investors their their capital back or, or you know, a little bit. You know, it's it's uh, you can I mean that that's made very apparent in all of these securities documents, the PPM, the everything. It's you could, you know, this is a risk. You are taking a risk. This is an investment. We put um, that know. in every document. You know, it's a risky investment. Uh, you could lose all of your money. 
So, and so what I love about that about that clause is, let's say you're doing a, um, well, let's say you're doing a 300 unit apartment building, you're syndicating it, and you put in there, oh my gosh, this is a risky business. You can lose all your money. Well, what would have to happen? What would have to happen to have you know, 50% vacancy in that building so you couldn't make your mortgage payment? Something catastrophic would have to happen. Right. What are the chances of that? So the people who read that and go, ooh, is that the truth? You don't want them as investors anyhow, because they don't have any experience. They don't know. They're not sophisticated. They don't know what's going on. They're not sophisticated. You know, you need, probably need to, to be able to show your people that you've underwritten a best case scenario of uh, 15, 20% vacancy, and today the market's five. So, okay, so what do you know about that? And so I love putting that in there as kind of a shock factor early on uh, to keep you, Tyler, from taking the wrong investors. Let's get them out of your way. <laughs> that, that's right, because sponsors want to have the right investors in their deals as much as the, the investors want to have the right sponsor. It's not just a, you know, you're willing to take on any investor. No, I mean, there are, uh, just speaking to other deal sponsors, other GPs, there are plenty of investors that are on their blacklist that they will not let into their deals because, you know, either they were calling once a week asking for an update. It's like, no, we, we give updates quarterly or monthly. You know, that was in the PPM that was in our offering. You know, we can't do that or for what, you know, they're harassing you about the project or the, it, there's all sorts of reasons that a deal sponsor wouldn't want another investor to come in. I've been very fortunate. We've had many wonderful investors that, you know, of course, look, if, if, if they text me and, and, and I have time, of course, I'm going to respond. But, you know, typically they'll wait until the quarterly updates and then they'll send some questions after that. My team and I can get back to them. But usually it's it's very simple and straightforward. Well, that's why I entitled my book. It's a whole new business for the real estate people out there because it's it's not just real estate. I wrote it for real estate people, but there are a lot of things that you can syndicate. We've syndicated distilleries and the dreaded cannabis and all this stuff. Right. Uh, so a lot of things you can and syndicate, but uh, the whole new business aspect is much more of a people business than you could ever imagine. And then there's a whole set of laws that go with it, the securities laws that you don't know anything about if you're just a real estate investor and real estate uh, real estate um, broker so it's it is a uh, it is a people business no no doubt about that that's right i mean speaking of the of the laws and everything I mean, obviously there are so many rules and regulations that as a syndicator as a deal sponsor you have to follow in order to be uh, in line with what the sec how the sec feels you should be pitching your investors you know, as a, as a deal sponsor, what can and can't you say about an offering? Well, you can't say the word guarantee. <laughs> you cannot yeah, say nor that. Nor would you want to. <laughs> <laughs> so you can't you, you can't say uh, you can't say that. Well, the whole the basic premise of the securities laws would be summed up in giving the investor all the material facts ahead of time so they can make an informed decision. And that's why you have to write a private placement memorandum 
because where are we going to put all the material facts that you can prove you've given them and everyone gets exactly the same set of facts and everyone gets the same facts at the same time. You put it in writing, you put it in a document and it can look any way it can be delivered online or with a staple or however, a three ring binder, however, however you do it, but that's the requirement. So you have to, and I think there are 17 sections in my private placement memorandum, all the things you have to talk about, you know, risk, conflicts, the business plan, the cash distribution, what does the manager make? You have to just tell them everything. And then on top of it, you have to um, put in the subscription agreement, something that the investor signs that said, hey, I've read all this material. I understand all this material. And I had a chance to ask the manager any questions I wanted and I got my answers. And then they sign off, they attest to that. Yeah, the documents are very, very well written. I actually had an investor of ours out of Atlanta uh, call me and say uh, they complimented them and they said, I actually use Gene, so I recognize them. These are very easy to, to, <laughs> to, to read through. Gene, will you tell us what the various documents are and what their intention is? Yes. First of all, there's the document that I call the story, the story of the offering. And I call it the private placement memorandum. Some people use that term as a collective noun for all the documents, but I call it the private placement memorandum. It's the story of the offer. How much are we going to raise? What are we going to do with it? And uh, all the things that you need to know. And then there's a set of rules that you have to have for how is this operation going to run? And that's called the operating agreement. And right now you're getting into the point where I'm using the term operating agreement members. We don't do limited partnerships anymore as an industry. Uh, for the most part, we do limited liability companies. So there's an operating agreement and the operating agreement tells the members and the manager what the rules are. Then there's a subscription agreement, which is basically an offer. The, mem the potential member makes an offer to the uh, syndicator. You know, I'll invest the $50,000 and here are all the things I've done that you need to know about. And uh, to prove that I'm sophisticated uh, and I should be in your deal, here's an offering questionnaire where I'm gonna supply you with the answers you ask for on what my experience is. And so there are those, those documents. And then there's an exhibit list. The exhibit list pretty much is the uh, document that shows that we have actually formed the entity in whatever state we do it. But the most important exhibit in my world is exhibit number four. And Tyler, that's the exhibit you put together, which talks all about the real estate. I refer to the exhibit in all my documents, as opposed to taking all that information, all your pictures and your site plans and everything, and put it in the PPM, because it makes that document too long, too cumbersome, and if there's a change, too difficult to make all the changes wherever they occur. So I leave the exhibit as exhibit four, and that can change right up to the day that people make investments because you're learning stuff from the lender, you're learning things through your due diligence. 
And so we have that exhibit. That's very important uh, document. And then what the securities lawyer does is the securities lawyers uh, draft a form D, it's called, we send to the Securities and Exchange Commission. It's an information gathering form. They want to know, well, they want to know how much money you're raising. That's where they come up with the 1.8 trillion number. And then every state needs a notification that um, you've gone in there and raised money from citizens of their state. And so we have to do all that. So it's, it's a lot of paperwork. It takes three or four weeks to get the paperwork done, um, generally. And that's if we have a client who is forthcoming quickly with all their right. information about the project. You know, Sometimes we have to wait for a while. So. That's right. You got to participate. <laughs> you, you can't just, you know, Gene can't read your mind, unfortunately. Um, right. So all those things put together, some people would call the private placement uh, memorandum. And I talk about it as it's the story, it's the rules that you offer, and it's the exhibits. Yeah, that makes sense. So there's there's two different types, primarily two different types of syndications, a 506B and a 506C. Can you talk about the the pros and cons of, sure. of either format? Sure. Um, coming out of the uh, securities laws, there was a decision by the Congress that not every investor needs the protection of the federal government. And so they started talking about uh, rich and smart people. Uh, maybe we can let offerings happen where the rich and smart people um, can ask questions themselves and read the documents themselves. But other than that, everything has to go to the SEC and be pre-approved all your wording. And so uh, they came out and said, there's a certain group of offerings to a certain type of investors that are exempt from uh, full registration at the SEC. And it came out with, you know, rich and smart people, we can do offerings to them. And, and that was an offering that was always called a rule 506. And uh, 506 said you can raise an unlimited amount of money from accredited investors. And uh, you can't advertise, you have to know all those people and you have to give them all these documents. So that went on and on and on for a long time, but there were a lot of holes in those rules and regulations. So 1981, um, they came out with uh, Regulation D, which kind of changed things. Regulation D said, let's go ahead and do things the way we've always been doing it, but let's call that 506B as in boy. So in a 506B offering, you can raise as much money as you want from all the accredited investors. And at that time, they actually defined accredited investors, so it's not a guess. And you can have up to 35 people who aren't accredited, who we call sophisticated. For the purpose of that, that was to improve capital formation. So we could take 35 people who, who aren't accredited and put them, put them in your deal. And you need a private placement memorandum, but you have to have had a pre-existing relationship with all your investors. No advertising, no general solicitation. You're gonna raise your money through your database of people that you know. 
some people call it the friends and family exemption, but it was much broader than that. Uh, much, much broader than that. It was just people who you had a relationship with. Then the Jobs Act came along in 2012. So we've gone from 1981 to 2012. And, and during that time, Gene Drobridge could not advertise for any investors. So except for the people I knew personally, no one else knew that I was building mini storage. And I was pretty good at it. And there are a lot of accredited investors out there who would love maybe to invest in the type of projects that I have, but they didn't know about me because there's no way to get the word out. So they came out in the Jobs Act with uh, 506C. And 506C is basically the same as the B. You can raise as much money as you want from as many accredited investors as you want, but you cannot advertise. I mean, I'm sorry, you can advertise. You cannot have sophisticated investors. But because you don't know the people, you're raising money with people that you don't know. How would you know if they're really accredited or not? So they have a third party accreditation process. So now we have two offerings. I can just deal with people I know. I can take sophisticated investors. I can't advertise. I can deal with people I don't know. I can only take accredited investors and I can advertise. Now you'd think that 506C with advertising would be fabulously prominent and important. 95% of the 1.8 trillion, Tyler, is raised in 506B. 95%. That doesn't, that doesn't surprise me at all. The, the most difficult raise that Bruce and I ever did was a 506C. And we decided after that, we're like, you know, because, you know, we, we've got we both have decent platforms, right? I'm big on Instagram and YouTube. He's big on LinkedIn and he's got a big mailing list. And so we figured, you know, hey, we can blast this out to everybody um, and, and we'll be we'll be able to raise it like that. <laughs> and what we found was basically all we did was end up getting accredited investors from our existing list. Sure. We didn't get anything from, you know, any Instagram ads or Facebook ads or any other types of advertising that we did because convincing people that you don't know and that don't know you to give you a hundred thousand dollars is very difficult. Very absolutely. Very difficult. And you have you both are in the position of having pretty substantial databases. And that's what that's what I find. I find in my my company is no different than the average. Uh, you know, 95 deals I do will be 506B and five deals will be 506C. But what I find is good about the 506C and seems to work is on a smaller deal early on, let's get out there and let's market the hell out of ourselves and add people to our database with whom we can then establish a substantive relationship and then take them into the next 506B offerings. Because I bet even though you didn't raise money, I bet you got people you didn't know who came to you and you converted them into people in your database. Absolutely, we did. Yeah, that so was, that's that was a, the that's best thing that strategy. came out. The smallest one I've ever done was a uh, uh, $360,000 offering, uh, $10,000 a person. The, um, the sponsor put in 10 and he was looking for 35 
accredited investors each put in 10,000. And it was even weirder <laughs> than that. It was a classroom situation. He was an educator and he thought, what better way to educate people on doing a syndication than bringing them all in and let's do one together. So he was looking for 35 students, each with $10,000 and his $10,000. And they went out, it was back East. They went out and researched properties and bought a property and did the renovation and did the whole thing together. And they actually made money, but that was their class. So that they went 506C because he wanted to advertise to his whole potential student base, which might not have been people with whom he had a substantial relationship. They just ran his database. That's a pretty so. interesting way to go about it. I mean, it's that's uh, I've never even thought about doing something that small, but blasting it out there and just marketing it with the intent of, hey, I'm going to get you into my mailing list. I'm going to start building a relationship with you, and then we'll have you in on the next one. I like that. Um, what What are your thoughts on hiring outside equity placers, people to people to raise equity for your syndications? Is that possible? You had mentioned earlier, you know, the broker dealer thing doesn't really exist anymore. Not for private placements like us, because we don't we don't offer the liquidity that the REITs and the public marketplace offer. So they they don't they don't do that. Well, my advice to people like you who come to me and say, "What should I should I have uh, Gene Trober, Genius Group raise money for my deal?" is don't do that. Don't do that. <laughs> Uh, the securities laws are two securities laws. We've been talking about the one that requires a private placement and all that stuff. The other security law deals with uh, protecting the investors from bad people who sell securities and it requires licensing and a lot of uh, background checks. So now you're going to go out, I'm going to go out and raise money for you and I don't have a securities license. Uh, that's that's problematic for both you and me. Um, what I do think some people can do, and I have clients to do it, they do what's called a fund of funds. The first one I ever did was kind of interesting. They raised uh, $5 million and they raised it from people at $200,000 at a time. And now they have their offering of $5 million and they went to big syndicators who required a million dollar minimum investment. And they invested in five $1 million funds with their own LLC. So the LLC became one investor okay, in the fund because none of the people could get in on their own. But if you uh, fractionalize it, they could. And uh, then all the cash flow went to them and they did one tax return and they did one set of checks and they ran the investment. Well, since then, I've done a lot smaller deals than that, but there are people out there who, uh, I have one person who likes the mini storage world and he's raising a fund of funds just to go out and invest in other people's storage facilities. And I do a lot of offerings for people who do storage facilities. So. And so is that kind of a way to get around the friends and family aspect of it? I mean, how, how would that well, work? So see, my offering then, let's say I'm the guy who's raising money. My offering is probably a 506B. Right. And I'm raising money from people I know. I have the pre-existing substantive relationship 
and then I can go, my LLC can be one investor in your 506B. Now, if you're doing a 506C, then I'm in trouble. Then all of my investors have to be accredited. Okay. So if I do, if I do a 506B, I only have to have a pre-existing relationship with the managing member of the LLC that invests in that? Well, you don't even have to have that pre-existing relationship uh, because they have the pre-existing relationship. When I was dealing with the stockbrokers, you wouldn't say I really had a pre-existing relationship with the stockbrokers to them, but they had the Rolodex and they had the pre-existing relation with the investor to bring him in the deal. So, so that will, uh, that will work. Um, there was one real important point I was going to make. <clears throat> the risk to you is that if I'm raising the money for this group that's going to come to you, I've done something wrong in my fundraising. Maybe I'm telling you I'm doing a 506B, but I'm advertising it on my LinkedIn page. That'll screw up your offering because everything I do wrong goes goes uh, to you. And if you're doing a 506B, you can only have 35 sophisticated investors. So you have to look through my offering to see how many sophisticated investors I have. Uh, one of my clients does a lot of this, but he only takes accredited investors that he knows. So we don't have any problem when we go and invest in Tyler's deal. Tyler doesn't have to worry about his 35 investor limit because everyone in uh, my client's deal is accredited. That makes but it's, sense. It's, uh, it's trouble. You know, uh, the downside is if the person who's raising the money does something wrong, uh, the deal goes bad, uh, the investor can go after that person for rescission. The investor doesn't even have to go after you. Go after the person who raised the money who didn't have a, a securities broker's license. <laughs> that's that, kind of a problem. That's a that's a real risk for the person who uh, who raises the money. There's no uh, there's no doubt about that. And on top of it, Tyler, you can't pay anyone for doing that. If I was going to bring you a million dollars and I want you to pay me ten thousand dollars, you can't do that because I'm not a securities broker. But if in my own fund. I raise a million dollars and I have them pay me $10,000 as my acquisition fee to go out and find deals like yours. That's fine because I can get paid by my own investors, but I can't get paid. There's no commission unless you have a securities license. Yep. So don't do that. Just don't do that. Yeah. That may, I mean, just, just be careful. <laughs> make sure if you're, again, if you're getting into a syndication, you're going to start a syndication Make sure that you hire Gene or hire somebody like Gene to help you throughout that process because you do not want to make any missteps. I mean, look, Bruce, who has been doing syndications for years now, I think he did his first syndication in 2013, he will still call and email Gene every now right. and then with a question, a specific question of, hey, how do we handle this? Because you just don't want to find yourself in a compromising scenario. Gene, we're coming up on about an hour uh, so I want to be respectful for, of your time. I've got one more question. And again, if anybody uh, is is joining us live and would like to ask any specific questions they have on real estate syndication, please be sure to jump in the live chat. I'll make sure to ask Gene those. Um, 
Gene, what is the most amazing success story that you've seen come out of a syndication? Something that just stands out to you in your all your years of doing it. Boy, I have never been asked that question. That <laughs> most, well, I think the most outstanding thing is the one client I'm working with now where I've done 140 offerings with them. I remember when they they called me into their office to interview me because they wanted to leave a big law firm that they were using and they had heard about me and they actually owned my book. So I went in there and I went through the interview process and I, I walked out of there and said, you know, those guys aren't going to use me. That's just, I'm just don't fit with them. And uh, no sooner did I get back to my office about a half hour away that they called and said, yeah, we want to do you and here's our first deal. And their amazing success is their niche, just like you. Their niche is finding developers who have a good tracker record in developing uh, multifamily, micro units, and student housing. Wow. And these developers need the capital. So my client comes in and provides you know, 90% of the client, the capital, takes over control of the, uh, the syndication, not the development, the developers do the development, on a two or three year hold. And then when the deal is done, uh, permanent financing comes in and takes our client away. And they do 506B offerings with only accredited investors. And his database is closed to new investors. That's wild. That is an amazing, uh, amazing story. And then, you know, my other, uh, uh, Bruce is an example. I don't know how many deals, but I'm sure it's in the double digits we've done from when I met him and how he was going to do that and, and leaving the group he was with and going out into the real world and, uh, and doing it, you know, that's, uh, that's good. And that's kind of why I'm in the business. I'm in the business to help people started i'm not really in the business just to do a deal with a client that's actually it's too much work because there's too much education and too much editing and, and all that you want to have clients that have the wherewithal i think i have i have five clients who have done in excess of 30 deals with me each. that's i mean that says a lot to have that kind of retainer uh, client retainership is it really says it speaks volumes to the the kind of work that you all are doing now which look I can I can personally attest to right because I am a, a client of jeans we've been very impressed with the the paperwork and the documents and and the accessibility honestly right you know when you work with attorneys you know people get worried about you know hey if I send an email am I going to get a bill for two hundred and fifty dollars uh, and that's just not the case with his firm. I mean, they, they do it on no. typically a flat fee basis, but, um, you know, I, when I don't want to get too far into how Gene charges. Cause no. <laughs> when I was a syndicator, uh, the lawyers who worked with me had to give me a flat fee. I wasn't going to go down the rabbit hole with hourly working. And so then when I started my company, I knew that that's, that's the way I wanted to be. And we're virtual. We're, we're a little more virtual than we were. 18 months ago, but not necessarily because of COVID. Uh, my office manager, great story, uh, um, moved from Temecula, which is outside of San Diego, to College Station 
because he's got a junior in high school who's 6'6", 230, wow. and wants to play SEC football and wasn't going to get it out of the San Diego football program. So they moved, you know, in the shadows of Texas A&M. And, <laughs> and then uh, my, yeah, my IT guy has worked with me for six years, and he thinks this is a cool deal. So he just moved to Boston where he got a full scholarship to go to the New England School of Law. And while he's doing his job with me, he's a full-time law school student. So I'm in Tennessee, Boston, College Station, uh, San Francisco, and Orange County. Well, that helps. I mean, that helps you do these deals all across the country, doesn't it? All across the country, right. Well, Gene, thank you so much for coming on the show. If anybody wants to reach out to you, uh, get the book, if they want to listen to your podcast, if they are interested in retaining you to help them uh, with their syndication, how can they get a hold of you? The best thing to do is to go to my website, uh, trowbridgelawgroup.com. And if you want to get a hold of me, you can schedule a free consultation. And on my website, there's information about our YouTube channel and and the book and all that, that would be great. Or just call me directly, uh, 949-855-8399. Uh, that's my direct number. I answer my phone myself. And uh, uh, that's how I, that's how I, um, that's how I communicate. I love that. That's bold, giving out your direct line. I uh, I would be terrified of doing that. But I mean, that, again, that speaks to to the level of quality of, of Gene's service. So uh, that's Trowbridge Law. Was it TrowbridgeLawGroup.com? TrowbridgeLawGroup.com. Perfect. And my email is even, you're going to love this, Gene <laughs> at GeneTrowbridge.com. Easy enough. <laughs> Gene, thanks again for joining us. Uh, to our audience, if you are watching on YouTube, don't forget to like and subscribe so you get notified every time we go live with a wonderful guest, very much like Gene. Uh, if you're listening on the podcast, don't forget to rate and review. It helps us to continue to bring these episodes out uh, to you and everybody else that is seeking education in commercial real estate. And we will see you all next time. Thanks, Tyler.